millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. No, my guest today spent a long career working in the law, first as a barrister and for seven years as a High Court judge, during which time he presided over several high-profile defamation cases and managed the jury list for the civil courts. Bernard Barton retired in 2021 but has maintained a keen interest in his former career. He's active in writing and researching in both the law and history and he has a special interest in proposals around changes to our defamation laws, specifically a proposal to abolish juries. He passionately believes in the role of juries in our courts. Recently he sat down with me to discuss this as well as changes he observed over the years in relations between judges and politicians and why retirees like himself could be a further use to the administration of the law today. Bernard, people would have known your long career as a High Court judge, but I suppose what people would not perhaps be aware is that you're actually a descendant of Robert Barton, one of the signatories of the treaty. Well, I'd love to claim that I was a direct descendant of Robert Barton. I did know him, but I'm not a direct descendant because Robert's two brothers and himself, they all volunteered, like so many other Irish, to fight in the Great War. And his two brothers were killed in action in France. He didn't marry until very late in life. And uh, his two sisters, they never married at all. So that whole branch of the family has died out. But I, I got to know him. My grandfather was friendly with him. There's an ancestral connection, but it's way back. Uh, but socially, we, we knew, he, you know, he was friendly with my grandfather. And, 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 and he was as well, in just most people will know, but some wouldn't. Of course, he was the first cousin of Erskine Childers, who had a major role in the revolutionary period and then was executed Correct. in the Civil War. And... An interesting feature too, I think, from Barton's background, they were actually unionists originally as family. Correct. All my family were, were, were unionists. Southern, well, southern unionists. And there's a big difference between southern unionists and northern unionists. big difference is that southern unionists favoured and supported home rule. Yes. Um, and, and that all came out in the, in, the, in the convention, the Constitution Convention of 1917-1918. So, um, uh, but obviously within union, so they, 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 it's a bit like Scotland today. They supported the idea of self-government, but within the United Kingdom, that was the, that was basically a good encapsulation of the Southern Unionist position. So yes, and Robert Barton and Erskine Childress, they were they were staunch Unionists. Um, and so one of the interesting things is the migration. How did Robert Barton and Erskine Childress migrate from? from being staunch unionists um, from that background to being revolutionaries. It's, it's an interesting it kind is, of story. Like, yeah, and, and few people made that journey all right, but it is interesting, particularly when they played such a, a central role in, yeah. in the formation of... of um, of the state at the time. Your, your own background then, um, Bernard, you grew up in Dublin, you're, you're from a kind of a business background, you, your correct. father was involved in business. Uh, yes, my grandfather was English, both my grandfathers were English as it happens, married to Irish women, <laughs> um, 
And after the First World War, they both served in the First World War. My grandfather got the idea that cars would be a, a coming thing. And so he got involved in, the, in importing cars and agricultural machinery into Ireland. Um, and so that was actually, became quite a successful business. And so I grew up in that, with that background. There had been lawyers in, in, in England uh, in the family background, but a business was the, and agriculture was his particular interest. And Robert Barton had a particular interest in developing modern agriculture in Ireland. So I think they were quite friendly. You know, they had common interests that right. way. Um, and uh, I, I did go into the family business. I read law in UCD um, when I left school. But, but at the end of that, my father said, listen, enough learning. It's time to get into the business. It's, 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 it's time to go and earn a crust. And so I went into the business. But actually, I met. That's, that's, that was, um, I think I just, I hadn't quite finished university at that time, but I was doing summer work in the business. And Robert Barton called in to see my my father or my grandfather, I can't remember which. I think they might have been both there. My granddad still had an interest in the business. And uh, my father phoned over to the department where I was and he said, come over here. He said, there's somebody you'll be interested in meeting. And sure enough, it was Robert. And he asked me, he said, well, what were you doing? And I told him I was reading law and he was delighted to hear that, you see. And then he said, well, what, what do you think you'll do with yourself? Thinking I might have said, well, I'm going to become a solicitor or a barrister or at least one of that. And I said, well, I think I might be going into the business because, of course, my father <laughs> was in the room listening to this conversation. And he said, well, don't give up the idea, I said, of going to the bar. He said, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a really interesting profession. It's a good profession, he said. And he said, there's, there's, there's great satisfaction to be derived uh, as a barrister from serving other people. Robert Barton was a great man for public service, as he proved in his whole in his life. But uh, I never forgot that. And yeah. after a few years in the business, I took his advice and went to the bar. And I, I saw somewhere... And you, you, you obviously you were, you, were, you were in the motor business, so you had your own car at that stage. But uh, your father thought uh, perhaps it might be best to give back the car if you were moving out. <laughs> well, when I was in the crisis decision, uh, having just got married, uh, will I go to the bar or will I stay in the business? The business was thriving. It was a very big business. Uh, I mean, we were motor um retailers, distributors and importers, you know, it was a huge, it, from my perspective as a boy, man, you know, young man in his 20s, it looked like, you know, <laughs> this was a serious business to be in and there was little, you know, comments every now and again, this business will be yours someday, you know, sort yeah, of yeah. comments like to, But um, the women in my life, my wife, my mother uh, and aunt, uh, they, they were all saying, why don't you go to the bar? Uh, you talk the hind legs off a donkey, would you not would you, would you not go to the bar? Try, give it a try anyway. So, yeah, so the day came, I said, right, I'll do that. And uh, I went in, I was called down to the office the day I was leaving. And I knew it was my father, you know, wanted to say something to me. And the pot it was, I said, keys. So I, in those days, I think I was driving a Jaguar right. car, uh, which was a company car. And the keys, I thought it was a strange sort of request. <laughs> so so he, I took the keys out, put it into his hand, and he closed his hand like that. And he said, you know, this, you know, you'll thank me for this. 
And uh, I didn't feel that way, I have to say, as I was walking home. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it was It was basically, you know, the bridges were now down. It was an encouragement to yeah, make sure, yeah, yeah. you know, that, that there was no coming back to the business. You leaving now, you're going to the bar, make the best of it, pal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this door, fit, this fit door shut. Home, yeah. I, didn't, uh, I didn't see that at the time, but no. I was grateful for it afterwards. <laughs> You were a long time on the high court bench um, yourself, and and you spent a lot of um, you spent a lot of time managing the the civil juries list for a number of years. I did. That would have given you a panoramic view, really, of what was going on in the courts and trends and that kind of thing. It did. I think it's fair to say that that the court system um, didn't keep up. It wasn't resourced proportionately to the expansion of the Irish economy. So you still had a disproportionate number of judges and courts to the to the population. And we ended up in a situation, by the time I was appointed uh, in the noughties, um, where of all of the European countries, Ireland had the least number of judges per head of the population of any country in the European Union, including the Eastern Bloc countries. And not only were we at the bottom, we were like a whole division below right. the next country. We were so disproportionately represented. And that had created, especially you can imagine, the, most people listening to this podcast will be aware of how successful the Irish economy became in the noughties. Uh, and before, hey, but the court system was simply unable to to cope with the with the demands which were put on it. Huge areas of business which didn't even exist when I went into the bar. For example, family law uh, was was in its infancy when I went to the bar in nineteen seventy seven. It's a huge yeah. element in our lifetime. But um, so uh, and commercial court, for example, is another you know, commercial activity and commercial litigation, you became massive uh, with with the development of the Irish economy. But um, uh, the, the courts lagged way behind in terms of, of resourcing. Now, the, the government has recently, you know, tried to address that by um, increasing the number of judges in, in each court. I think there's recently been 10 High Court judges appointed now to the High Court, which are badly needed. And of course the implication for that is that people accessing the courts, they're subjected to very long waits and, and like anybody facing into legal action, everything that goes along with that, the stress, everything, all kind of suspended because getting access to the court. It's dreadful. It basically, it, it, it surprised me that the state wasn't sued uh, more often than it was. Uh, over delays in the court system. And in fact, you know, the the Commission and the, the European Court of Justice had indicated that there was a there was a necessity and um, an imperative uh, on the state to provide for uh, access to, 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 to justice to it for its citizens. And um it, but, but that needed that needs and needed resourcing and so that's the real problem about delays and the consequences of that for litigants uh, was a lack of resourcing. That was my whole experience 
And in some areas of the law, we've seen, you know, it's developed in various ways, and particularly in recent years. And if you take one example, just struck me in personal injuries, um, we've new guidelines came in there a number of years ago, and a number of members of the judiciary were opposed to them. And one of the reasons, as I understand it, were opposed was they felt it would have impinged on judicial discretion. And what would your opinion be on the likes of that? Well, I need to be careful uh, um, about that. Um, making comment about that um, because there's litigation well, in, in, sorry, pending, in, in, pending in, in broadest terms of the concept at the moment about that but um, I think it would be no secret um, it is no secret that I was opposed and that the, if you like this, the High Court judges who were, if, if you like, in the firing line, they, they, they were the ones who who had to deal with the serious, very serious personal injury cases, um, that they were opposed, they were unanimously opposed to the to the um, to the guidelines as proposed, not to the concept of guidelines, yes. but, but to the as to the guidelines as proposed. And one of the one of the areas of opposition, one of the grounds for opposition was undoubtedly that they were far too restrictive on judicial discretion. I mean, the whole idea of an independent judiciary is that it is independent <laughs> to administer the law uh, in accordance with the law. And and uh, and th- there was an element, I suppose, about the guidelines as proposed, uh, which which restricted that, which in, in our view, fettered that discretion to a degree which meant that actually a judge um, might not be able to award compensation in a particular case which the judge considered in accordance with legal principles was a fair and reasonable sum to compensate that person for the injury they suffered. And and so that that is... No, they, they, they did pass, but... By a fairly small minority. Yeah, majority. different different opinions. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's so interesting. It's the jury, if I could put it that way. Yeah, it's still out, it's still out on that. And just this was a separate issue that came through the judicial council. Judicial council is a relatively new it is. concept. A positive development. I think, absolutely, a positive development. Um, I I think it, it's a bit like with the, with the new constitution when it came in in thirty seven. There's a, there's a, there's a, it takes a time to basically say, you know, what does this really mean, and and how can we, um, you know, how far should we go in 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 making representations? I think myself that the whole purpose of the judicial council, you know, it, it's actual stated purpose for it, you know, was to give the judiciary a a proper voice, uh, whilst respecting the separation of powers, and I think. There is a conservative, I would say, the approach of the Judicial Council is that we should maintain what was always traditionally at the position of the judiciary, that you know we do not interfere uh, or make public comments about anything which is in the sphere of the legislature. And basically, we should avoid making comments about anything which is other than, the, other than legal matters. But I, I think that there are pieces of legislation, for example, um, which might have an impact on the public good that the Judicial Council should consider, I think, should yeah. consider. If there's a judicial view, shall we say, on perhaps some proposal, 
uh, and given the way in which the Oireachtas is now established, you know, the committees in the Oireachtas, like the Justice Committee, yeah. I think, I, I believe myself, so not, not a question of thinking, I, I actually believe myself that in important measures like that, the Oireachtas Committee on Justice, for example, would welcome uh, the view of the Judicial Council, perhaps on a proposal, but I think the Judicial Council at the moment thinks, no, this is crossing the Rubicon, maybe we should. Whereas um, I don't agree with that. I actually think, I can understand yeah, why yeah. that well, you, you'd, be, you'd be bringing expertise Correct. to the table in that respect if the, if the Oireachtas was passing a letter. Correct, and it is simply, you're simply um, communicating a view, you're not telling the, the Oireachtas what they should or shouldn't do. It's a matter entirely and exclusively for the Oireachtas to decide what piece of legislation they should or shouldn't pass. I suppose what some people might say with the opposite view is that if the Judicial Council presented a particular view and if the Oireachtas didn't go along with it, which they would, of course, be perfectly entitled to, would there be any feeling then that um, they're not going to like this? Do you know what I mean? I suppose that, that could play and, into and, it. And that may, I don't know, I'm not privy yeah. to this, I mean, it may, because, I mean, it's a relatively new body. I mean, it's only... I mean, I think the judicial guidelines were the first real sort of thing, they, and then I retired shortly after that. So, um, so I, I'm, I'm sure that was, is probably one element uh, of it. There would have been occasions when the Oireachtas would have been perceived as crossing that separation of powers. Like, without giving you any state secrets, <laughs> anecdotally, you and your colleagues, would there have been times when you might have said, I don't know, there, you know, this, this is impinging or patch kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Without saying so officially. That's probably uh, one of the big changes I've noticed in my own lifetime, over 50 years. I mean, if somebody in the political world criticised a judge, I mean, really had a go at a judge or basically said, you know, the judges are not fit for purpose or either one judge or a particular or group of judges, you could guarantee that the political parties across the Dáil and in the Senate, they would defend, they would basically say, hey, listen, this is trespassing on the uh, sphere of the judiciary. We don't go there. I mean, you don't say those things. So there would, if you like, the judiciary would never need to say anything because they could always rely on the political establishment to defend the judiciary, knowing full well that the convention was that the judiciary would say nothing. It was part of the deal, so to speak, of of creating an independent judiciary and appointing p- people to um, to a judicial office with the, all the power that that carries. That they do not say anything about legislation, about the legislative fear. It's 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 if you like a clear distinction. There's a reason for the separation of powers, and. Um, it's essential to the health of our democracy. And part of the deal is that ju- judiciary do not say anything. But in, in the past, it was always the case that 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 position was respected. And if it was broken, eh, the, the politicians themselves would defend it and say, listen, you're stepping out of line now. That's not, that's not so evident now. I think that's the big change now is that you... And I think that's a bit uncom- discomforting and disquieting that that you can't now rely on a unified approach by 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 members of the Oireachtas, um, 
on that issue. That's interesting because I, I, I just wonder, is it one of the things that when things are going all right in that respect for so long that we take for granted? I mean, if you look at two places, just strike me off the top of my head, Israel and Poland, where there are issues ongoing over impinging on the independence of the judiciary. I think actually one of your colleagues may have gone in support to, to, to Poland, what was going on there. And are we at a stage where we're taking that independence for granted? And as you said, the old conventions that used to be there are not uh, ad- adhere to in the, the, the other arm of the of the state. Like. Well, that's correct. And unfortunately, the, 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 the lines are getting more and more blurred and it is one of the reasons why I have taken the unusual step, uh, although I am now retired and I uh, I am, if you like, freer than I would have been had I been a serving judge. And I, I totally respect the concept of the separation of powers and these conventions. But I think that our democracy is under threat. I mean, what happened last week, last Thursday, uh, it's just, the riots in it's, Dublin, it, yeah. It, it, the riots in Dublin. It's, it's just, and unfortunately, uh, there is, I, I think, in the system, there is a, there's a drive for control and the elements of democracy, which are so important to our democracy, I believe are under attack. And the most recent iteration of this is a proposal by the government, well, by the Minister for Justice in particular, to abolish the right to trial by jury. I mean, uh, trial by jury is it is the quintessence of our democracy. And uh, I would say it's very difficult for people to, to challenge or criticise a judgment which has been made by 12 citizens. It's much more difficult to challenge that decision than it is to, to, to challenge the decision of a judge. Are we talking about the area of defamation here? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's just in that in that particular provision. Uh, I, I think it's not it's not commonly known that all civil wrongs. I'm not just talking about criminal offences now, but all civil wrongs in the High Court for serious civil wrongs are tribal as of right by jury, and um, the concept of jury trial is as old as the law itself. It's actually it's actually considered to be so important it was it was provided for in Magna Carta. So it's been part of our law for eight hundred years. So a proposal by the government to actually take away this right is not just stripping the citizen of his or her right to choose the mode by which a defamation action and now it's at this stage it's only in defamation it should be tried. In other words, the, the citizen has the choice. The litigant citizen has the choice. Will I have a judge or will I have a judge and a jury? So the government want to take away that choice. That's the first thing. But the consequence of taking away the choice is that the public are removed from the administration of justice. So those who advocate for the removal of jury trials saying, well, we don't need it. We just let a judge decide it. They're actually, I don't think that this is something which the public really appreciate. What they're actually saying is, we don't want the public any more involved in the administration of justice. Now, that is about as undemocratic a position as you can probably imagine. 
Okay, no, just to touch on that with you, Vern, the... the um, but that's not, sorry, this is not the first time that's happened. I mean, it, 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 it happened in 1988 when the right to trial by jury was taken away in personal injury actions. It was abolished in personal yes. injury actions. And in those days, the claims being made for the abolition of jury trial in personal injury actions in the late 19, in the late 1980s were that legal costs would go down, awards would go down, you get clear judgments from 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 a judge, appeals would go down, and insurance premiums would go down. Exactly the opposite happened. That legal process became longer because there were more appeals. There were more appeals because it's easier to appeal a decision of a judge than it is a jury. And uh, legal costs went up uh, with the damages. So awards went up, the cases became longer, not shorter, uh, and insurance premiums uh, followed suit. That is that. So the, the exact opposite, and the same, so the exact opposite of what was being claimed occurred, as we know, and the same claims that were made then are now being made to support the abolition of jury trial, of the right to trial by jury in defamation proceedings. They are saying the costs will go down, uh, trials will be shorter, and uh, uh, we'll, have, we'll, have, we'll have a decision of a judge, altogether a better, a better result. Uh, the exact opposite is going to happen. Okay, and I suppose just to fill listeners in a small bit, there are major proposals to change the law on defamation. Sure. Uh, and, and these include, as you mentioned, I suppose possibly the most controversial is the abolition of juries. There's also kind of elements like a simplification of the defence of fair and reasonable publication yeah. on a matter of public interest, uh, a more media-friendly defence for an unexpected defamatory comment during a live broadcast, yes. which I yeah. think is an issue. And there are other measures to deal with kind of strategic lawsuits, I think slap or whatever they're yes, called, exactly. that kind of thing. But, uh, and it's just two elements strike me about it, um, Bernard. One, there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It is the case, and uh, you, you made the point about personal injury, but it is the case that in the vast majority of civil litigation now, there is no jury. The defamation is the only one really left that is a matter of course. Am I wrong in that? Completely wrong. Right, okay. Um, but, but sorry, you're, you're in good company. <laughs> even, even, in fact, it was said, uh, it's even been said by some members of the Supreme Court in, 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 in recent judgments, um, it, you know, that there are only a few cases uh, in, in, in which there's a right to trial by a jury. Now, actually, funnily enough, uh, as the jury... The, the head of the civil juries division of the High Court, I was invited by the court service to write a book uh, on civil jury trial. And so uh, it's taken me two years to do that. I've just, I've just finished it. And as a result of that, I, I made discoveries. I made discoveries myself, which I wouldn't have been aware of at the time when I started the book. Um, uh, and I had that impression myself that there were really uh, just a few 
uh, causes of action, as they're called, uh, which are tribal by, by, by jury as of right. Uh, I, was, I, I discovered I was completely wrong about that. Uh, and, and that, in fact, all civil wrongs of a serious nature are tribal as of right by, by, by jury. What about in practice? Uh, in practice, the main cases, and I mean, I, as I say, I'm, uh, I, I headed up that list so I have a very yeah, good knowledge yeah. of it. In practice, the right is exercised. And I mean, that's the point. People, simply because people don't have a jury or don't ask for a jury, doesn't mean to say that the right can be ignored. They have a choice to make. When, when you go to serve notice of trial, the notice of trial says, do you want a jury or not? And now, many people opt, opt to have, a, a, in a civil action, a trial by judge alone, which, which, is, which, is, which is fine. But they have the decision. Right. They make the decision as to which they want or their solicitor does on their behalf. Invariably, though, in cases involving the fundamental rights of the citizen, so each one of us has got fundamental rights guaranteed by the Constitution. So our right, for example, to, to bodily integrity, uh, our right to a good name, our right to free speech, um, our right to liberty. Uh, so where the fundamental rights of the citizen are involved, the vast majority of cases in the High Court, it, the one or other of the parties looks for a trial with a jury. Right. And I think this this is something which is really not understood, that all the fundamental rights of the citizen. So if you were, a, say, wrongfully arrested or a, a, you were prosecuted when you shouldn't have been prosecuted or you were assaulted, uh, whether by, I'm now, <laughs> by anybody, I mean, I'm not I'm talking about a, a police officer hitting you with a bat. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking about any intentional wrong on the citizen committed on the citizen. So any any assault, battery, uh, wrongful arrest, you know, I'm talking about maybe a person shopping in a shopping centre and they're taken into a room against their will because they're suspected of shoplifting. I'm not just talking about police actions. I mean, this could be, this could be, this could be any private citizens or, you know, uh, groups of citizens, <laughs> nothing to do with, with the police. But in, in any case, in all cases now involving the constitutional rights of the citizen as a person, their, to their integrity, to their freedom, to their liberty. Those are all tribal as a right by jury. And included in those constitutional rights is the right to a good name. Yeah. So, in funny enough, if peculiarly enough, if uh, this proposal was to be proceeded with, the only constitutional right in which there wouldn't be a right to trial by jury <laughs> is for a good name. All others are still would still be tribal as a right by a jury. That's that that that, that, so that, that is, is something which I think is not fully appreciated by people. Yeah, no, that is a fair point. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Now, can I give you a view perhaps 
in terms of where I'd be coming from is in the media, and, and I'm, I'm not speaking for anyone in the media, but this is, I, I, I would guess, one line that people within the media would have. And that is that we're talking about democracy under threat in various ways. And some people are suggesting, particularly with the evolution of the internet and that, that the, the issue of free press is under threat in various ways. And you can go all the way back to Thomas Jefferson with his famous quote, if you had a choice between a, a world in which you had newspapers and no government, or a world in which you had government or no newspapers, he would choose the former on the basis of people weren't able to talk about it. You, you, you're not going to enable democracy. Now, some people in the media would suggest that because for financial reasons as much as anything, because of the way things have evolved, that the concept of a free press is under threat. And following on from that, there would be suggestions that one of the issues that arises there is that the defamation laws and the views of the media are very uh, onerous. And one of the things there is the issue of when you're sued, going to court, the cost of it, and what people believe in, in the media would believe is the unpredictability of the kind of awards that can be given out and, and whether they were genuinely proportionate. And the attitude there is that having a jury in that trial makes it far more unpredictable and therefore far more costly. What would well, you say to that yes. argument? Well, I'm, I'm, well you, I'm well used to that argument. And... Uh, I would say that there is merit in uh, the argument which was obeyed 40 years ago by the media or 30 years ago by the by media proprietors mainly and then then uh, senior journalists like yourself and 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 um, ed- ed- editors that there was a tendency uh, of juries to give unpredictable awards. Um, and sometimes uh, grossly disproportionate awards, starting, I think, with De Rossa in 1999 and going straight through past into the, into, into, into the, into this, into the last decade, um, with cases like our, uh, uh, new, uh, independent newspapers versus, versus Ireland, um, and McDonough, uh, so there was and I have to recognise that there was some basis for for complaint and for concern. But what has been blurred, and it's a really good example of blurring, is the recent review of the 2009 Act, which is required by the Act itself, the 2009 Defamation Act. I read with interest the submissions by the media owners uh, to the review. And what struck me about that is they... Cases that they were relying on, like the Russell, like independent newspapers, and Ireland, like McDonough, uh, these were all cases involving the 1961 Defamation Act, right. not the 2009 Act. Can I ask you, finally, Bernard, you're quite obviously still very active of mind and body well into your retirement. You're involved in, in compiling a fine a fine book, uh, The Men and Women of the Anglo-Irish Treaty Delegation 1921. Um, and you're, as you say, you're still actively involved. D- judges have to retire at 70. Um, would you see a scenario whereby they should be allowed to serve longer or that they, they, they could move into another role within the judiciary in some form or another at that stage? Well, fortunately, I you know the 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 grey matter is still still functioning. But that's the <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, 
It's something I would personally love to be able to do. I know colleagues retired colleagues have said that's it. They were they were glad. Let me out the door. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and they've, they've gone off to play golf or sail or whatever or whatever it is that they do gardening, eh, or whatever their activities are, and they're just finished, eh, and they accept that that's they accepted that the day they were appointed that when they finished that would be it, and they that would be the, um. It's an interesting question because uh, earlier on in this interview, we we talked about the uh, terrible um, restrictions on the capacity of the courts to, to deal with the with with the with the huge uh, backlog of work that was building up, mainly because shortage of resources in Northern Ireland. And in the rest of the UK, eh, you can come back. Right, I didn't know so, that. So basically, if you're if you're now provided you're physically up, I think until seventy five. I mean, I think seventy five. But as far as I know, seventy five is the, is the definitely is the shut off point. But between seventy and seventy five, you can certainly serve. Eh, and and so even if you have retired, I think you have to retire at seventy and and. Um, but, um, for example, the jury list um, sometimes finds itself, as I found myself, without a second judge. You need to have a second judge at least to to, to move the list along um, in order to get the business done. If there was a shortage and the president of the High Court found himself, you know, short a judge, he could bring me up. If, if, if this was the North yeah, of Ireland, yeah. he could bring me up and says. Could you give me a hand? Could you could you come and sit in the jury sessions this term, or next term, or whatever? And that happens regularly in Northern Ireland. I've met judges up there who are like this. They are, they come back from retirement, and they're essentially under license. So although they are retired, there's a specific legal provision which means that the orders that they make are as as if they were still a fully serving judge. So there's no constitutional infirmity, if you like, with the orders that they make while they're sitting. But of course their their power to make court orders or here could exist only for so long as they are actually sitting in in, in a court at the invitation, I think, of the the Lady Chief Justice, as it happens in Northern Ireland. But this happens all the time in England and it's a it's a huge valve, so to speak, oh, yeah. for letting off. And it also means that people I mean, I think of some of the finest brains, uh, legal brains uh, from the Supreme Court recently, now recent retirements, and then up from the Supreme Court in the Court of Appeal, they're gone, they're lost. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, I think, um, you know, Justin McCarthy, your own colleague in the Irish Times, who interviewed my colleague, Deirdre Murphy, you know, uh, Justine herself said it in a very interesting article, interview, they said that, you know, uh, why should the state be be deprived of the knowledge and expertise of these of these people because of a convention that they should say nothing. I have to say, Justine's article encouraged me to, to get involved Good myself stuff. Good in, stuff. This, in this particular debate. Listen, it's been a fascinating conversation. Um, Bernard Barron, thank you very much for talking to us today. That's it for today, folks. Hope you enjoyed that interview. I certainly found it very illuminating, I have to say myself. As always, I want to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. Be well. We'll talk to you soon.
On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.